Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. No matter where we're born, we enter worlds that are governed by customs and expectations. The practices of those worlds, informed by certain values or beliefs, affect what we're named, how we're identified, and what we're raised to do and be. Faith traditions are very much part of that. And for that reason, people in the LGBTQ community are at disproportionate risk of having negative experiences with mainstream faith traditions, which typically do not welcome or accept folks who identify as anything other than cisgender heterosexual. The loss of religious or spiritual identity can be devastating, not just a loss of belief, but also a loss of community. That's where Project Sanctuary comes in. Project Sanctuary is a series of free monthly sessions facilitated by trauma-informed practitioners offered to people who have experienced rejection by organized religion. Its next session is on Saturday, November 11th. St. Louis native Aria Tomei leads these sessions at Gethsemane Lutheran Church, a radically inclusive ELCA church in South St. Louis. And she has a very personal story behind how she's come to do this work. Aria, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you so much, Elaine. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk first about Project Sanctuary. What was the impetus for it? Um, In other words, when was it that you realized that there was a need for sound healing sessions for people who've experienced rejection by churches or religious communities? Well, in my own upbringing, I was raised as Roman Catholic, and I worked in the Roman Catholic Church as a choir director for many years, and and I knew the rhetoric, I knew the dogma, I knew the doctrine, so it had to be a hidden thing. Um, I was not allowed to be who I was or to explore who I was. I knew that I wasn't cisgender. Um, So I lived under the guise of being gay and male for so long, not being encouraged in any way to explore that or to further um, delve into that. So consequently, I just dove into the work of choir directing without giving much attention to self or self-care. And I realized after some time that all that time that I was giving attention to the work, I was ignoring myself and what was coming up inside of me. I had never really found my community within the gay population. Um, It wasn't until someone years later suggested to me that I might be transgender that it finally occurred to me that, oh my gosh, like. I'm a transgender female. That's what it is. Um, And at that point, there was tremendous loss. Um, I almost couldn't accept it because I knew that it would be the loss of a job. I knew that it would be the loss of friends. I knew that it would be the loss of a spiritual community. And 
as a choir director, I knew it would be the loss of so much music that I had grown to love and grown to work with over the years. So it took me a while from the time of realizing that I was a transgender woman to actually come out as a transgender woman. Mm-hmm. And where was it that that happened? It was not here in St. Louis. No, it wasn't. I had lived in Arizona. I moved to Arizona in the year 2005 and almost immediately became a choir director at a Roman Catholic church because that is what I knew and that is what I was familiar with. And so in doing that, I knew what the, again, I knew what the dogma and the doctrine said. I knew that I would have to keep my mouth shut about so many different things. So the work that you were doing mm-hmm. involved sound on the level of, of choir, of singing. It did. So it must have been both a source of comfort, but also not necessarily a place of full expression. Is that part of what what inspired Project Sanctuary once you got back to St. Louis? Once I got back to St. Louis, I had it really started to occur to me, especially when I came up to my parents and experienced just full-on rejection from them based upon spiritual reasons. It really occurred to me just how much faith and trauma based upon faith that I have been through, hearing messages of, if you're not cisgender, you are intrinsically disordered, you are somehow an abomination, you are flawed. Um, And hearing those messages again and again, even though I knew them to be false, there's something about hearing them over and over again that just kind of plays on your psyche Mm -hmm. and just kind of wears you down. And so I I realized as I was as I was coming into my own and I was as I was transitioning into a trans woman, getting to know more of the community and talking with more of the community, I realized that so many of the community grew up in Judeo-Christian traditions, other traditions as well. None of those traditions embrace fully the LGBT plus identity or really invited people to explore themselves mm-hmm. um, on a personal level. Um, the idea of a Christian church um, promoting that um, seemed very alien to me. Mm-hmm. So the last church that I worked for was St. Joseph um, in Clayton. And and I lost that job because somebody outed me because I was still working under my given name, which was Adam. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was out to enough people that somebody outed me and the word got out. Mm -hmm. So, and it wasn't until, you know, I started looking for, and this was right at the beginning of COVID. So it, it was right after that that I found the choir position at Gethsemane Lutheran Church with uh, Pastor Cheryl Valente Gorvey and reading their mission statement. Their mission statement was like just a breath of fresh air because they include people of all identities, uh, sexual orientation, gender identities, people of you know different economic um, 
you know, fortunate or less fortunate. Um, I was like, if I can work here, like, I think I can belong. I think I can, because I think so many people belong to a faith tradition because they long for community. They long for a place to be welcomed. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gethsemane, like, became that for me. So I still got to work with sacred music, which is what my doctorate's in. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I got to be fully aria. So it was kind of a milestone because it was the first time, like, legally, I was hired as aria, mm-hmm. like, on paper. So it was kind of a, a really celebratory yeah. moment. <laughs> it was certainly a milestone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so these sessions that you are hosting, yeah, you've talked about the way Gethsemane is so open. Yeah. And these Project Sanctuary sessions are equally open. Why do you feel that it is important to have these sessions in a church setting? First of all, I wanted to make sure that people understand that through Project Sanctuary, we're not trying to convert anyone into a progressive Christianity or not trying to promote people or encourage them to join the spiritual tradition. But it was important to us that they felt welcome in a sanctuary space where they before were not welcomed. And then we play on that word sanctuary as being a place of safety, mm-hmm. where they can feel safe, you know, in the breath work and in the sound and how that all works. Together, people are brought to a space exploring their inner child, amplified by the sound, where they feel free to express themselves, where they feel free to have releases and where they feel free and safe to have these expressions Mm -hmm. of trauma release, which happens every session. And that trauma release is very specific to sound. And you've brought several sound instruments, healing instruments with you today. Can I have you demonstrate? Let us hear what it is folks are hearing when they are coming. Yeah. So what I'm going to first demonstrate for you is a Tibetan sound bowl. I'm going to strike it, and then I'm going to sing it. Because of the way that it's constructed and mostly brass, um, the healing qualities are such that they have many overtones. So in physics, you have a tone. You have tones that are sounding on top of those. You yourself have overtones in your voice. I have overtones in my voice. That's what makes your voice distinct from my voice, is the percentage of how those overtones are heard. Mm -hmm. So what these overtones do in the metal Tibetan singing bowls is they work on the more subtle levels of the body like the emotional body and the mental body. They also work on the physical body as well. Yes, I felt that. Yes, because you can really feel the vibration. Mm -hmm. And when you have certain intervals, and an interval is the distance between, the musical distance between one bowl and another bowl. When you have certain intervals, they're even more healing because those intervals 
occur naturally in nature mm-hmm. and in our bodies at the macro level mm-hmm. and at the micro level. Okay. So you can literally tune the body. So in the very beginning of the Project Sanctuary sessions, um, through the breath work and the sound, what we are doing is literally tuning the body and getting it ready to receive the suggestions and getting it ready to receive the sounds Mm -hmm. and come to encounter their trauma and begin to unravel it. Mm -hmm. You also brought some chimes with you. How do these work? Well, you tell me, how, how did you feel upon hearing them? I felt very calmed, even though there were multiple notes or tones playing. Yes. Um, and it felt like there was more going on sort of in, on the surface of my body, whereas with the bowl, it it was more visceral. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what they are. They're they're two. Diff- each chime makes a different chord, and when they are played, what they do is they harmonize the aura, the biofield. So you just, you don't end at your skin. There's energy that goes beyond your skin, and so what it does is it harmonizes mm-hmm. your aura, and like you said, it brings you to a sense of peace. Project Sanctuary also involves use of the the instrument that we all have, which is the voice. Mm, yes. So I understand that uh, the power of voice is also really important in the healing process in the form of chanting. Yes. Talk to us about that. Well, that is how I got into sound healing in the first place, is through Gregorian chanting, and then my exploration into world chants and finding all sorts of wonderful modalities of chant um, from different traditions. And part of what I do is lead bhakti kirtan sessions, which is devotional chanting, call and response. So we also do a lot of that within our Project Sanctuary sessions. For instance, one of the chants that we sing is Baba Nam Kevalam. So it's six syllables, Baba Nam Kevalam. It means love is all there is. And we just, and we chant that for probably about 10 minutes. And and people are crying. And there's deep release happening. And unfortunately, the LGBTQ plus population has been silenced. They haven't been encouraged to speak the truth of their identity, especially to to superiors when they're younger. Mm-hmm. And they have a harder time expressing the truth of their identity because, you know, in a way they might still have shame or carry guilt about who they are based upon whatever religious tradition they grew up in. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Let's return to our conversation with Aria Tomei, sound healer, music director at Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and the facilitator of monthly sound healing sessions in a series called Project Sanctuary. The next session will be held at 8 p.m. on Saturday, November 11th at Gethsemane in South St. Louis. Now, Aria, before the break, you were sharing about the importance of chanting in your and others' healing processes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this instrument, the, the medium of the voice, how is that something that you have seen uh, being an instrument for people to, to arrive at some stage of healing in their journey? Well, I hope this isn't too long of an answer, but in reflecting about the voice, I can see in just the way I grew up that the voice was stifled. So for instance, I can remember very vividly of a breakfast I was having with my father and in the newspaper, it said that a gay man was refused a ride from a taxi driver. And he said, oh, well, good for the taxi driver. He also refused to take a shift with a gay man. And then when my sister came out, encouraged all of us to keep this a family secret. Um, And so our voices were shut out. Mm -hmm. It was through singing that I finally began to feel a sense of relief. Imagine you have hair that's tangled in a knot. Um, Right around the throat chakra, you you can kind of tease it out. That's what singing does, because singing vibrates the throat. Mm -hmm. And so those energies are, are vibrating. So through singing and through the process of singing, you know, that throat chakra and that permission to use your own voice is granted. And all of a sudden you find yourself speaking up for yourself. Um, Because I feel that it took me so long to become comfortable with my voice. And as a transgender female, I, I think it was... I know that it was difficult because the last thing you want to do is open your mouth and quote unquote, give yourself away. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've actually gone through male puberty and you know, my, my voice has dropped and like, I don't know, giving myself away like that vocally, mm-hmm. like I wish I wasn't so conscientious, conscientious of that. <laughs> Um, but I was, mm-hmm. um, I'm more comfortable now that I've been using my voice, um, in choral directing and in singing, but mm-hmm. the voice is so attached to the person. You just can't separate the two. Mm-hmm. So you came back to St. Louis after living in Arizona for a while. What was it that made you come back? I, I was working, I had started working for a Catholic high school as a choral director. So I moved from a Catholic parish to a Catholic high school as a choral director. 
And there was a group of parents who knew that I was living as a gay man who took extreme objection to that and just wanted to do everything they could to oust me from the school. And so eventually at the end of the year, they found an article of me online from something called the Gay Men's Project. And so my story was told where I identified as a gay Catholic and they were like, here, we got him. And so I was called in even after I was given a contract for the next school year and let go on the basis of sexual orientation. So I was left without this rather secured job. I was directing two community choirs and giving voice lessons. I didn't really have the financial stability to really come out as trans female. And right. I didn't have what I thought was social support. And I thought Arizona was still too red, for lack of another word, mm -hmm. for me to really come out as trans female and feel safe coming out as trans female and exploring that. Um, and so I had a nervous breakdown. And so when I had a nervous breakdown, um, my family reached out to me and said, maybe it's time for you to you know, come to home. To come home. And, and the story that I told people who, who I didn't want them to know that was that I just wanted to be close to my 12 nieces and nephews, mm -hmm. um, which wasn't untrue, but it wasn't the complete truth. Right. So yeah. what is your relationship now with your family like? It, it's very complex. I've, I have three sisters and a brother, and all of their kids. If I visit them individually, Elaine, they will call me Aria, and they will use the proper pronouns. But if we're in a situation, say, like a Thanksgiving or a Christmas, they won't advocate. Like, they're advocating stops. Mm -hmm. Like, if dad misgenders or if dad... Um, misnames, they will not correct him. Um, and so I just had to draw the therapeutic boundary that I don't want to be in a situation where the kids are allowed to call me one name and mom and dad are allowed to call me another name. I don't want to have to explain again to my nieces and nephews why mom and dad are allowed to play by one set of rules, so to speak, and they can go by another set of rules. Mm -hmm. um, as far as names go. Yeah. Um, I just didn't want to be put in that position. And so I haven't been to Thanksgiving or Christmas in like four years. Mm -hmm. um, I've just relied on, you know, friends and people at the church and um, other people who have been very supportive of my identity mm -hmm. over the past couple of years. And, and to make things a little more complicated, my mother has onset of dementia and um, and it's really, really unclear to me just the ability, the ability, excuse me, the ability that she's going to have to really understand and conceptualize who Aria is. Like, I don't think she'll ever get it. Mm -hmm. um, and, Dad is just 
trying to be the protector and protect her mental state. Um, so, excuse me. No. Um, so it, it doesn't feel like there's going to be a time when, when mom and dad will get, will get to know Aria. It feels like they will always be waiting for Adam to come visit again mm-hmm. and Adam to show up to holidays. You know, there are so many opportunities that are coming up in my life now. Um, you know, I would love to celebrate with them about Project Sanctuary. I would love to tell them how Gethsemane, like, offered me a naming ceremony right. at the church. I would love them to know how supportive Cheryl has been to me and invited me to holidays and just all sorts of things. Yeah. And um, I don't feel like I'll ever get that chance. Mm-hmm. And that feels like a tremendous loss and one that I haven't been able to really convey to my sisters, just how how devastating that is. Mm-hmm. Um, it frankly makes me want to not stay in St. Louis because one of the main reasons I moved back to St. Louis was to be closer to family and um, the conditions being placed upon me by family, mm-hmm. um, in other words, to remain Adam. Yeah. Like, I I just can't be in St. Louis in those conditions. Mm-hmm. One of the things this is making me think about is the way that you left St. Louis, and it was something that was recommended to you by a priest who recognized that you needed that space yes. in order to come to who you were. So when you grow up in this conservative Catholic bubble, it just makes sense you know, to date someone of the opposite sex. And you know, if you don't get in any major arguments, then you get engaged, <laughs> you know? And then, you know, if that all goes well, then you get married. Um, but by this time, I, I I was in college, and I was playing a couple nights at a gay bar downtown in St. Louis, which is no longer there, a gay piano bar. And I had realized that there was more to me than I was, than I knew. And in that level of awareness, the priest picked up on. Mm-hmm. And there was one night that I was just having a meltdown, like, at the house I was staying at. And he called randomly, like past nine at night, and just said, I haven't heard from you in a while. I just want to check up and see how you're doing. And I just bawled over the phone and immediately went to the rectory where he was. And we chatted over tea. And um, he said, I can't marry you two. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to go somewhere, and you need to find yourself. Yeah. So he was tending to your spirit. He really was tending to my spirit, which, when I think about it in hindsight, like, it's so rare for a Catholic priest to give that kind of advice. Mm -hmm. And is that part of the reason you did not reject Catholicism or faith outright? When you put it in that sense, yes, because I felt like there was hope. I've always felt like, as my time as a music director and as a choir director at Catholic institutions, 
that I felt very cavalier, like I could change the institution from the inside. If there was a gay man living and operating and doing ministry within the church, then maybe there's hope. But although I was able to reach a few people, which, you know, I think was valuable in its own right, I, I think changing the larger church was just something one person wasn't going to be able to do. Sure. And I just had to recognize that within yeah. myself and know that my place was somewhere different, which was very difficult because mm -hmm. the Catholic Church was all I knew. Right. And um, I had a great vocational crisis of like, oh my gosh, now what? Mm -hmm. Then you became the director or music director at Gethsemane yes. Lutheran Church. That was, as you said, it was your first job as Aria, mm -hmm. and you had talked about the the blessing of a name ceremony yeah. that you had at this church. You were also talking about family, and found family is a common phrase in the LGBTQ mm -hmm. plus community. Is that something that you are trying to build up with Project Sanctuary, not just for yourself, but for others as well? I do. Um, with Project Sanctuary, I want the opportunity to exist where LGBTQ plus people can come together with the commonality of religious trauma and create community. Because I really do feel that people heal best within community um, when we can lift each other up. Um, you know, Loneliness is an epidemic of our time, and loneliness is certainly prevalent in, in the queer community. Loneliness can just, it can overtake you. It can, it can turn your evenings long. It can make you not want, want to get out of bed or even put your feet on the ground in the morning. Um, but there is a community. There is a community of people that want to help, um, I would just explore, tell people to explore and, and find these opportunities because I'm an introvert. I've, um, I've spent too much time alone, um, trying to heal, like heal my way out of trauma intellectually. Um, but always I come back to community, and I, and I find that it's within community, mm -hmm. that a hug, a smile, mm -hmm. you know, just togetherness. Yeah. I, I think that's where true healing really happens. And with Project Sanctuary, one of the, um, I guess, side goals is, is to create a community of people who are united in this I've been I've been scarred religiously too, and and that commonality, and that mutual lift, lifting up of one another, can be so powerful, especially at the end of a project sanctuary session, mm -hmm. where we do what's called harvest time and we kind of like talk about our experience and maybe a couple things that we're going to bring with us, mm -hmm. um, 
people always talk about how safe they felt, um, how unusual it was to feel safe, um, and how how strong it was to feel like they weren't alone. Yeah. Um, that there were other people who felt this too. And this next Saturday yeah. is the next Project Sanctuary. That's mm-hmm. Saturday, November 11th, starting at 8 p.m. Yes. And you and breathwork practitioner Mo Costello will host a free sound healing and breathwork session. Yes. And it's for those, as you've been talking about, um, who have experienced religious trauma based on their identity. Arya, who do you think should consider coming to this session? That's a good question. The people who should consider this question are people who have grown up in a particular faith tradition that have emphasized that their identity is somehow less than, and that have discouraged exploring who they are. And that could be Christian, but it's not limited to Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, Many spiritual communities, um, you know, for all the good they do, um, just get this one wrong. And, um, you know, anyone, if you can be asked the question, do you feel comfortable exploring who you are within your faith tradition? And if your answer is no, then I think this would be something you should attend Um, because of the community, because of the healing, because because of the sharing and everything that goes on on a Project Sanctuary evening. Aria, thank you so much for talking with us today. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Emily Woodbury, with podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.